Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me this week, Jason Moser and Andy Cross. Good to see you, gentlemen. Hey, hey. hey Chris. We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We'll talk financial behavior with Wharton professor Katie Milkman. And as always, we've got a couple of stocks on our radar. But we begin with big retail. Costco's first quarter report was pretty much everything a shareholder could want. Profits and revenue were higher than expected. Digital sales nearly doubled. Same store sales up more than 11%. And Jason, shares down a little bit on Friday. Are, are we not entertained? <laughs> well, I mean, it was definitely entertained. It was a good quarter, um, and and uh, yeah, 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 the market market is, is selling the stock modestly. I wouldn't read too much into it. I think I think part of the market's reaction here is we're 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 pretty far into this pandemic, and I think you know we're closer to things getting back to somewhat normal, or at least we're seeing that trend. And, and so, that ultimately means that shopping behaviors are going to start to normalize to a degree. And I think the big question, and, and maybe the question that the market's focused on, really, is will Costco be able to hold on to the current behavior and then keep growing from here? Or is there going to be some kind of a reset uh, for the business, and in going, you know, to the performance that you were talking about, there. I mean, shares, uh, earnings per share of three dollars and thirteen cents versus two dollars and forty-seven cents a year ago. Very strong. Uh, fourth quarter membership fee income up modestly from a year ago. Total paid households, though, I thought this was really impressive. Total paid households at, well, at the end of the quarter came in at fifty-eight point one million. That compares to 53.9 million a year ago. So clearly, they're getting more households to buy into that membership model. And and I think the other concern, right, is is given the state of things today, you know, one of one of the big value props for Costco is gasoline. And and as people don't go there to get as much gasoline, there is a little interplay there in in traffic for the stores. And we certainly saw traffic on a worldwide basis down modestly, although in the U.S. it was up slightly in transactions and in. Uh, you know, have 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 grown a, a bit as people continue to stock up. So all in all, a very good quarter. I think the market's just really looking forward and asking itself that question of, do we have to hit a reset button here at some point or not? And and I I think that's a fair question. I think what's interesting about Costco, we hear this a lot from a lot of retailers. And Jason, you just touched on it a little bit, is that even though the the traffic the traffic into the stores might be down, the amount they're buying once they're in is way up. We saw this big time with Starbucks and I think for others too. So you start to see the your fewer trips to the store, but when you're there, you're stocking up. You're buying things. And I think that really bodes well for Costco, which obviously has that um, history and the the actual um, brand of going there and buying lots of stuff, lots of big stuff. And the more and more we're stuck inside our house. Is the more and more we actually need stuff that Costco sells is interesting. I don't know if they talked about their business, um, uh, the 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 business traffic being um, up or down, Jason, but that that might have been interesting too because so many people are so fewer people are now in offices, and and Costco did serve a, a pretty good sized business community. First quarter digital sales for Nike rose 82%. Profits were higher than expected, and shares of Nike hitting another all time high this week, Andy. Yeah, a great quarter from Nike. Revenues were flat, and that was um, ahead of estimates. But what we continue to see Nike do so well is um, 
really innovate on the digital side. They started investing in the digital space a few years ago. They brought on John Donahue, CEO, who came over from ServiceNow and before that in PayPal, brought a real digital focus. Their digital sales were up uh, 82% this quarter. That's compared to 75% the previous quarter. Um, they added $900 million in incremental sales just from digital. Um, they're seeing 200% growth in demand for the Nike Commerce app. So, that's just like buying on, on activity. They're seeing 100% growth in monthly active users on that on that um, on that app. And what's important with that, Chris, is that the direct business has uh, 10 percentage points higher gross margin than their wholesale business. So overall, Nike continuing to really get it done and continuing to innovate in the space when it comes to their brand. Launched Nike Maternity, launched Nike Yoga with a fabric that they've been in production for for two years in development. They launched Space Hippies, of which we have a, a pair here. That's a, an incredible sell through product, which is which is really sustainable uh, source shoes. Um, so the consumer direct, the direct to consumer business for Nike and the innovation they've been putting in there has really been helping. Um, and the connected fitness, Nike active members through the connected fitness app is up 60%. They had an all time high a percentage of users using the Nike training app. So you get the brand, the business, and the technology innovation they're really doing and have emphasizing and investing into. And that's been a really big win for Nike and obviously for shareholders and the stock's doing really well. You know, Andy, we're at that point in the year where people are trying to figure out what sort of holiday retail year we're going to be in for. Nike's talking pretty optimistically about the holidays, but I don't know if that necessarily bodes great things for the retail landscape or just Nike. No, I think it bodes better for Nike, just again, getting back to that innovation. But the push to direct to consumer, that's really been the innovation for them. Um, they've their, their stores are back open, but the retail traffic, as I mentioned um, before with the retail traffic in general, that's down for them. So, even though their traffic is down, they continue to boost growth into that really important um, direct to consumer and really tying together the, the digital experience and making it much more brand focused with their one Nike marketplace, I think is a, is a big innovation for for one of the best branded consumer companies in the world, and now really becoming an internet, uh, a technology powerhouse in, in uh, retail space. Shares of AutoZone down 6% this week, despite a strong fourth quarter report. Profits and revenue came in higher than expected, and Jason, same-store sales up more than 20%. My goodness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this was another one of those really um, you know, ex- excellent retail uh, reports that we've seen recently, and, and, and there have been there have been a few of them, Nike and, and now AutoZone. A uh, bit of a home improvement angle here, I think, and the, the the market they serve is a fairly resilient one, given the role that that automobiles play in all of our lives. And uh, you know, AutoZone had noticed uh, earlier on. I mean, that the stimulus, for example, first round of stimulus helped their line of work, and we saw the same thing play out with Advance and O'Reilly. Um, an additional one will likely serve them uh, well, also. And, and, and let's face it; I mean, the stores are open for business, and, and there's a right way to go about things. So traffic is relatively okay. But um, they enjoyed actually their largest quarterly same-store sales performance ever since going public in 1991 at 22%. So that that tells you what kind of a quarter it was. But now you going back to Costco, I think we have to ask ourselves the question, is this the new normal or are we going to have to hit a reset button and and, and you don't really know there yet, but we'll, we'll get some more clues as, as the quarters go. But uh, again, the numbers I think came across uh, very nicely if you look at actual top line revenue only growing around 21%. But then you see how well they were uh, able to bring it down to the bottom line with net income up 41.2%. 
earnings per share up 47.6%. They didn't make any uh, share repurchases at all and have kept inventory in line as well. Uh, so, when you look at this space, I mean, AutoZone and O'Reilly are the clear leaders, kind of like that Home Depot and Lowe's uh, dynamic there. And, and I suspect that um, even if they have to hit a reset button with the business later on, it's still going to be a very good business and, and one that, that uh, shareholders should feel good about. On the flip side, Stitch Fix stumbled to the end of its fiscal year. The fourth quarter loss was much bigger than expected. You know, Andy, the stock is still up around 35% over the past year, but this was one of those quarters that you look at and you go, yeah, they've got their work cut out for them. Yeah, Chris, it wasn't a bad quarter. They added 9% more new members. That about matches what they did in the third quarter. Their revenues were up about 11%. Um, revenue per client up about 2%. But I think what people are focused on, I certainly am, is looking at the clients they brought in in that during that COVID period, really between March between March and May, and they had those new clients. Um, typically, in their models and their history, those clients come back and they order more and more. But they're not; they didn't see that. Uh, Stitch Fix really pulled back their marketing during that time to save money, and so that hurt their um, subsequent fix buys, what they call their fixes, subsequent buys for those members. And that's going to continue into the year. So I think that has some um, uh, concerns with analysts and investors, certainly me. So that's something to watch. Otherwise, they do continue to innovate. They do continue to have um, progress with the members they have been bringing in recently. So, for the last couple of months, adding more and more to their baskets and buying more. Um, but the concern about whether those members and the ones they brought in this year um, are going to be able to continue to add uh, additional revenue and is their lifetime value lower than what historically has been, I think has some, some concern on the, on, on the analyst front and on the investor front. How concerned should they be uh, about the ways in which uh, I'm going to call it non-traditional apparel companies? And I'm thinking primarily of Target and the way Brian Cornell, the CEO there, has been so focused on apparel at Target over the last two to three years. Is that a major concern, or is that sort of on the back burner? No, I think it is a concern. I mean, the competitors are getting more and more sophisticated when it comes to digital experiences. We just talked about Nike, and there are many, many others out there. Stitch Fix has been pivoting and had a lot of success with what they call the direct buy. So you no longer have to um, order something, wait for it delivered. You can actually now buy stuff directly from their website, and that's outperforming their expectations. There's a lot of return purchase health there. So they are continuing to innovate. They have these digital stylists that they, they work with. They have a lot of data scientists that they work with to help get the best measurements and the best fit. Uh, but they're not the only ones in the space, and there's a lot of innovation from some really good retailers out there. A lot of obviously challenges from the retail space too. But on the digital side, a lot of retailers doing some really good things out there. Coming up, if you're looking for a home security device, Amazon has a brand new solution you're going to find either intriguing or terrifying. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Jason Moser and Andy Cross. Shares of Tesla down 8% this week. CEO Elon Musk made a number of announcements at the company's investor day. And apparently, some investors didn't like what they heard. Uh, Andy, to the extent that there was a theme here, it was timelines being pushed back. Uh, you know, the cheaper model of the vehicle is going to take a few years. The batteries that were unveiled at the event are not going to go into mass production until 2021. It seems like Musk was being pretty reasonable. 
Yeah, I think there was also maybe from the Battery Day the event that they didn't have quite the huge big announcement. Maybe some people were were expecting, especially on addressing the the, the so-called million mile battery. Um, but still, overall, you know, still a lot of innovation from from um, Tesla coming out with the tabless battery. So they removed the tab that connects the cell into what it's powering to increase that range by sixteen percent, boost car power by six hundred percent, to drop the kilowatt per hour. So that's the real key. They have to drop that kilowatt per hour because they want to be able to go to that $25,000 level for the mass market to really get the car down to a level people can, mass market can can afford it. You know, from the the, the leaked email about that, the, the, the deliveries in Q3 of 2020 will be at record levels, but not so much greater maybe than what they were the last record in the end of um, Q4. So overall, it, it is interesting when, when Tesla continues to say, Jason mentioned, expectations, if he doesn't continue to really kind of boost those expectations for massive growth, um, you know, those those growth and momentum investors who have been getting involved, who don't have the long-term horizon, probably start selling off the stock. Well, it could be worse. Um, Nikola's shares were down 40% this week after founder Trevor Milton resigned as chairman of the board and deleted his Twitter account in the wake of fraud charges. Uh, both the SEC and the Justice Department are investigating the electric truck maker on the potential that the company misled investors. Uh, Jason, this really isn't a good look. I mean, maybe <laughs> maybe it's all a big misunderstanding, but the immediate resignation combined with uh, disappearing from social media really doesn't look good. No, it doesn't. And I, I tell you, there was a, a pretty good little trolling effort there on Twitter where they somebody had essentially turned him into a, a version, a male version of Elizabeth Holmes and put him in like the black turtleneck with a little bit longer blonde hair. And you're thinking, oh my God, this is just, <laughs> this is bad blood all over again. Maybe, maybe we are, maybe we are jumping the gun here. Maybe this is not as bad as it looks, but you know what, where there is smoke, there's often fire and there are enough red flags here for investors to at least take pause and say, you know what, I, there's no reason to rush in anything like this. They don't have a product. They don't make any money. And, and I tell you what is amazing is it's still a $7 billion market capitalization <laughs> company. I, I just, that is the time that we're living in right now. It does make you realize, economics aside, what Tesla and what Elon Musk has done to date and, and their ability really to keep on moving forward and all of these companies trying to pay, play catch up. And you're really starting to see some desperation from, from competitors. And it really seems like. Um there are other places to invest your money. Yeah, I mean, his response to the to the um, Hindenburg research report was, "This is all you got out on Twitter." I mean, like, really, like this is the, another example of why we, we you really don't be chasing these the stocks that uh, from, from founders that that um, that you just uh, not have the confidence in that we really need to see if they're going to build a business. Like Jason said, a $7 billion company, no revenue, all hype, a lot of promises out there. SEC investigation, BP backed away from their partnership to build the hydrogen fuel station. So, there are so many high-quality growth companies out there um, that you can invest in that, uh, that is less so far less speculation. Quibi, the fledgling video streaming service that launched earlier this year to much fanfare and very few subscribers, is reportedly exploring strategic alternatives. Among the alternatives being explored, an IPO or selling the company outright to Amazon, Apple, Disney, or Comcast. And Jason, all of those companies have deep pockets, and none of them 
should spend it on this business. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, you know, I, I, I won uh, the drawing this week for our monthly pizza day, so I was, I was lucky enough to have a pizza delivered here to our home, thanks to The Motley Fool. And with my girls both here uh, doing school for the day, I, that pizza is now gone, so I'm exploring strategic alternatives <laughs> as, as far as what I'm going to do for lunch, because it's resulting in nothing. And I think very much Quibi is going to ultimately result in nothing. Um, it feels like the question that should have been asked, that probably was not asked when this business was started, was if the content is there, but there's nobody to watch it, does it even exist? Because you can have content if you want, but if you don't have people watching it, who cares? And, and I, you know, I mean, they, they do have some content. I don't know that it's very compelling. And I think the biggest problem is that I don't think anyone, including Mr. Katzenberg, really knows what Quibi is to begin with. It was never very well-defined. I don't know if it's supposed to be social or streaming or social streaming. What void is it trying to fill? And, and so, I, you know, much like investing, sometimes you just got to be able to call it, admit the mistake, and move on, or you just keep burning money. And I have a feeling that is what we're watching play out here. Perhaps with his connections in the industry, there is some type of interest in making an acquisition. But I'll tell you what. Uh, any company that jumped in there to make an acquisition of this business, I, I would hold that against them because I think it's essentially a write down to zero um, in, in, in very short order. Security is a priority for any homeowner, and Amazon is here to help. Remember back in early 2018 when Amazon bought Ring, the smart doorbell company? Well, this week Amazon unveiled the Ring Always Home Cam, a flying drone camera that patrols the inside of your house. Andy, it's coming in 2021. It's a cool $250. How many do you think you'll be buying? Well, we don't even have an Alexa in our house, um, so I, I think the answer is zero. Uh, I, I got to say, when I first saw it, it's pretty cool. The little thing pops out when you're gone, flies away. The commercial I think they have out there, the one that I saw, is I don't think super inspiring with what it shows uh, with the with the criminal breaking into the house. But I do think the technology looks kind of neat for those who really care about their monitoring. You get it gets to the, the big questions of privacy and data and um, who is owning what and what are they seeing. And do I really need this? Um, but overall, if you don't need, you know, if you have a lot of cameras in your in your house or you have a large house, something like this actually could be kind of attractive. We know Jeff Bezos at Amazon is not afraid to um, spend on on innovation, and you know, if things work, great. But if they don't, move on to the next thing. All right, Jason Moser, Andy Cross, guys. We'll see you later in the show. Everyone else, get out your textbooks because we're going to class. Wharton professor Katie Milkman is next, so stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Well, we got no choice. All the girls and boys. All Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Does a rise in the temperature really make us bad at shopping? That's just one of the questions I posed to Katie Milkman when we talked earlier this week. She's a tenured professor of behavioral sciences at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and host of the podcast, Choiceology. We'll pick things up when I asked Professor Milkman about financial windfalls and how we should deal with them when they come our way. You know, I think one of the things that behavioral science has shown people do poorly is think about financial windfalls. We tend to um, we we tend not to make the best use of these opportunities. the The first and best use of that windfall is to look at your debts. And if you have debt, you want to pay that down, and you want to start with the highest interest debt. 
and pay as much of that down as possible. And if, you know, if you can pay that off completely, then go to your second highest interest source of debt and so on, because, uh, you know, debts are something that they can become a vicious cycle, right? That interest, it just accumulates and accumulates and it can it's part of the reason that half of Americans didn't have that $400 they might need for an emergency uh, when surveyed just a couple of years ago. And so uh, that is my number one most important piece of advice. Right after you've paid down your debts, I think having that emergency fund be the next place you think about putting a windfall is really important because we don't appreciate actually how often we are likely to run into emergencies. There's this really fascinating research led by Abby Sussman, who's a professor at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business, showing that when people look at their inflows and outflows into accounts over the course of a year, they'll see like all these weird things every month. They sort of think, oh, you know, I have to pay my rent. I have to pay these other uh, consistent bills. My car insurance and so on, they recognize that those are recurring expenses and they think about that as their budget. But then they'll see these like weird things that come up every month. Oh, you know, I had an unexpected doctor's appointment. Well, that's just unexpected. That doesn't happen normally. They don't think about that in their budget. Oh, then the next month their drain broke and they had to pay you know, a plumber to come and do repairs, but that was an emergency. Basically what they do is they look over the year and they they discount all these things that come up. And they say, that's not something I have to plan for, but it turns out they come up every month. They're different every month, but something always happens. And that's part of why I think people don't make the wisest budgets because of this, this mentality that if it isn't a constant and consistent payment, I'm not going to think of it as something I need to account for. But these these surprises are predictable. They come up over and over again. So we need to have that emergency cash reserve uh, to cover that in our budget. So that would be my second piece of advice. And I think that's enough. I'll let you ask any other questions you have, but I hope that helps. It absolutely does help. Um, One of the things uh, that you've written about deals with um, how we can change habits and obviously change habits that aren't great into more positive habits. It's uh, something you call temptation bundling. Before I ask you to explain temptation bundling, just out of curiosity, because you have this expertise, how many of your students or maybe what percentage of your students in a given year will say to you in an office setting, like a one-on-one setting, hey, by the way, uh, aside from the curriculum, I've got this one habit. Like, How many are seeking out your advice for how to improve a single bad habit they have? That's very common. And by the way, I welcome it. And the classes I teach are about behavior change. And I think my students, you know, they take the insights from class as uh, useful for their careers. You know, how can they manage a team at work and try to help people make better decisions? How can they make better decisions in their finances? How can they make better decisions in their personal lives? And, you know, solve Piccadilly, like little problems that come up over and over. And I think that's great. I want it to be all of the above. So it's very common for students to come talk to me about personal problems as well as professional ones. And I, I hope I can, I hope I am consistently helpful with both. Temptation bundling. What is it and how can I make it work for my benefit? <laughs> so temptation bundling is actually, uh, by the way, I should say I do what I call me search. So, so many scholars study problems they have and try to figure out like, oh, what are systematic solutions? Um, so you'll people, you'll see people who like struggle with uh, social interactions and social psychologists trying to figure out how can I be better at a cocktail party or economists who struggled with their finances, like becoming, you know, experts in this area. So I do that too. Um, I definitely struggle with maintaining good habits and I study it 
in part because I think it's so weird and quirky and interesting and that we can come up with solutions. Temptation bundling is a solution to a problem I had when I was a graduate student that I realized could help other people too. So when I was a graduate student, um, I had two problems. One problem was uh, at the end of a really long day, I was incredibly tired and I found it really hard to motivate myself to go to the gym, even though I knew it was like good for me in the long term and that I needed to exercise to have energy. It just wasn't where I wanted to be after all those classes. But then the other problem was um, what I really wasted time doing when I should have been studying was uh, I was really into to reading lowbrow fiction. So I would like curl up with a page turner when I should have been doing my homework. And I realized I could actually solve both of those problems at once if I uh, did the following. I only let myself read page turners while I was at the gym exercising. And um, by doing that, all of a sudden I stopped wasting time at home reading these books when I should have been working on my problem sets for my classes. And at the end of a long day, I found myself craving a trip to the gym, like eager to find out what happens next in my novel. And when I was at the gym, I didn't even notice the time passing and it wasn't even painful to work out because I was like, you know, so engaged in this gripping thriller that I, I just, I didn't, I didn't notice. Uh, so it solved all of these problems for me. And I realized like maybe that actually, I started calling it temptation bundling. I was like, maybe I'm not the only one who has like dual problems that can be solved this way. What if we, one, could systematically study this and see if it helps people to, to combine something that is really tempting to them with something that they uh, know they should do, but sort of resist. They, they uh, often feel they shouldn't, you know, they they're too lazy to actually get to doing. So can we make these combinations? And I started seeing other opportunities to do it in other parts of life. So we've studied it and shown that actually, if you, for instance, lock people's tempting audio novels at the gym and tell them they can only access them at the gym, it helps people exercise up to 50% more. Those are some results from a big experiment we ran early on. This kind of combination helps people a lot. And then we uh, also have recognized that it's not just exercise and, you know, temp books or binge watching TV. There's all sorts of other ways in life you can combine things. So some of my students only let themselves pick up, you know, their favorite drink at Starbucks that they crave every morning when they're heading to the library to study. And those two things are combined for them. Or you could imagine um, only allowing yourself to binge watch your favorite TV show while you're doing household chores and listen to your favorite podcast while you're out for a run. So you can sort of pick what are these things that you might be able to combine to get the best of both worlds. When I was doing some research, I came across a piece that you wrote for the Washington Post a few years ago. Time got away from me, so I didn't read it, but the headline was amazing, so I'm going to ask you about it now. Um, the headline was, heat doesn't just make us cranky, it makes us dumb shoppers. Now, I'm very familiar with the concept that you should never go grocery shopping when you're hungry. I'm aware of that one, and I try not to do that. Uh, and now that I've come across this headline, I'm grateful that the weather has turned you know, uh, wonderfully autumnal here in Northern Virginia. What is it about the heat that makes us <laughs> dumb when it comes to shopping? Oh my gosh, that's such a funny headline. And by the way, I should say, when you if you write op-eds for newspapers, they pick the headlines, you don't. I, I think they have some optimization algorithm. That they that's like. a good headline. <laughs> I guess. It was an article actually about research just, um, uh, and I was sort of reviewing other people's research showing that um, our emotions are triggered by uh, the weather and that on, on unusually hot days, we uh, actually are angrier and we make a lot of worse decisions. So actually my favorite study is not about shopping and it was featured prominently in this. It was about baseball players. Pitchers are more likely to hit hitters 
on hot days, on unusually hot days. And they, the analysis was really carefully done to control for like, oh, are they sweatier? It was, it was like unusually hot days, unexpected heat that made, seemed to make people angrier and more likely to, to try to hurt players from the opposing team. We make bad decisions about all sorts of things when we're overheated, um, when the weather is unseasonable. We also, by the way, are more likely to believe in climate change, it turns out, on days that are unseasonably warm. So it's really interesting how we're affected by these fluctuations in temperature. Our environments shape our decisions in all sorts of interesting ways. It really seems like the more I learn about your field of expertise, um, the almost like the the more self aware we all have to be if we want to sort of optimize who we are at work, who we are in our personal lives. It it, it can sound both rewarding but also a little daunting. Yes, I think that's true. Um, it, it, the field that I'm a part of, I'm a behavioral scientist, and um, what we do really is we study the imperfections in human nature, the ways that people deviate from being like perfect, optimal, rational decision makers who are like you know just like calculators, like Captain Spock from um, from Star Trek, right? Who who never make a silly move, and and recognizing all your mistakes and all your flaws can be a little bit overwhelming because there are a lot of them, um, but. I I actually, I think a more useful way to think about it is um, one, like recognize uh, it's okay. Humans, in, it's not just you, we're all flawed. Like we don't come with perfect operating systems. So cut yourself some slack when you screw up, you know, when you yell at someone and you shouldn't have, or you, you know, make a impulsive purchase or buy a stock that that you wish you hadn't or whatever. Uh, it's not like you are the most flawed human in the world. We're all flawed. Everybody screws up. It's human nature. So I think that one is empowering. And then two, um, it actually doesn't matter most of the time because most of our decisions are low stakes, right? If you like pick the wrong flavor of ice cream, uh, it's not going to be the end of the world. If you pick the wrong spouse, that's a bigger deal. If you pick, you know, if you really make a, the wrong choice of career, that's a bigger deal. If you buy the wrong house, that's a bigger deal. So I think it's useful to say, like, don't worry about, don't sweat the small stuff. And the fact that you will goof, that's human nature. But um, but it, it can be useful to learn more about making good decisions and really focus and try to talk to experts when you're making those big life decisions. How have you applied this to your financial life? How, how does Katie Milkman invest? I buy index funds. And I sit on them. <laughs> that is what I do. Uh, so, you know, I, I do not believe that I know how to do better, frankly, on the stock market than like a monkey throwing darts. And so, uh, you know, I have a diversified portfolio of index funds and, uh, uh, you know, my retirement portfolio when I, I con contribute the maximum amount to my 403B plan at my university and it's in a target date fund. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that is my that is my mantra. Like I don't think I can pick the right stocks. Uh, I don't. I never cash out when there's a crisis. I leave it. I don't look at it regularly. There's research showing that um, when you check your stock portfolio more frequently, you're also more likely to uh, invest uh, in bonds rather than stocks. And stocks, obviously, there's a, a premium for equity. So you want to, you know, I I just don't look. Uh, I don't look during these bumps because I want to smooth over those periods. Actually, sorry, I'm, I'm quoting that research wrong. It's a it's a paper on the equity premium puzzles, and here's what it was. It shows it's by um, Richard Thaler from University of Chicago and Shlomo Benarzi, and I was I was giving you a the punchline, but not actually the finding. So the finding is that you can explain away the equity um, premium port 
puzzle, which is that like, why isn't everyone investing in stocks? Everyone should be investing and they dramatically outperform bonds. And the answer is if people looked at their portfolio once a year, that would be often enough given our degree of loss aversion, which is like how much we hate seeing our portfolio go down. Um, once a year would be enough to explain the equity premium puzzle in terms of people people's feelings of loss that they would experience and and their aversion to that, that could explain the whole thing. So um, that leads me to say like the less often we look, <laughs> the less often we'll experience that loss and the less likely we will to be pull out, uh, we will be to pull out of stocks and make the wrong decision to be um, heavily involved. If you want to hear more from Katie Milkman, check out the Choiceology podcast or head to katiemilkman.com. You can get more of her thoughts and research by signing up for her free email newsletter. Andy Cross and Jason Moser are coming right back with a couple of stocks you may want to put on your watch list. So don't go anywhere. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here once again with Andy Cross and Jason Moser. Our email address is radio at fool.com. Question from Adam Travis in Brooklyn. He writes, I'm a new investor with just one year's experience so far. Aurora Cannabis was the first stock I bought last year, and it's done just about as badly as a stock can possibly do. Any advice for a stock market novice like myself? Andy, uh, Adam's got an experience that I think is common for a lot of people who are just starting out. Um, all the more reason you want to build out that portfolio as soon as you possibly can. Yeah, you really want to be able to diversify that portfolio. So, um, yes, uh, that one, that stock has not worked out. We do have those sometimes that don't work out in our portfolio. I certainly do, and I know many of us do. So, you want to make sure you diversify that portfolio, building out your your highest quality candidates, and continuing to save and invest as a new investor. That's really important. And also, make sure when you diversify, you can also think about um, very local index funds and ETFs too to really get that broad diversification in your portfolio. Don't be a one stock wonder. Yeah, Jason, we've seen that before, right? We've heard from people who've said, I bought one stock, it went down, and I'm out of the stock market for life. Yeah, and that's the challenge too, right? For new investors, especially because when you're getting started, you really you're starting from zero, and so it, it for a while you are not going to be diversified because you're going to buy one stock and then another and another. So it, it does take some time, and I think that's why um, when you're getting started, like Andy said, you either uh, start with something like an index fund or you start with companies in more reliable spaces with more reliable and business models and more more history of success. Something like you know we're talking about Costco. I mean that's been a wonderful investment for so many folks for so long. Um, so just so just be aware of that when you when you pursue those new markets like marijuana, for example, there's potential, but but they have a lot to prove still. All right, let's get to the stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is going to hit you with a question. Andy Cross, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? Oh great. I'm going
going with Inspire Medical Systems, symbol INSP, a $3.3 billion uh, technology health company that aims to help the 100 million people worldwide who suffer from sleep apnea. It created uh, the first closed-loop implantable stimulator to monitor breathing and deliver a little pulse if they if it if it uh, notices and um, uh, a little um, block in the in the breathing pattern. So it, it's helping 17 million potentially people in the U.S. It's an alternative to the CPAP machine that you Dan may have seen advertised on TV and is currently widely used. Um, it's a, addressing a 10 billion dollar market opportunity, um, which is more than 500,000 per year who are qualified for this kind of a device. So it's a it's a not a lot of revenue, very um, innovative, really focused on helping sleep apnea around the world. So I'm looking at Inspire Medical, INSP, Dan. Dan, question about Inspire Medical? Well, Chris, not so much of a question as a comment. Sometimes I go to conventions and sometimes I share a room with people to cut down on costs. And one time I shared a room with the guy who brought his CPAP machine and I was uh, sent to the underworld every night for the entirety of that con because it was a like a fan, but three times as loud. That person should be one of the 9,000 people who inspires help to, to help with their sleep apnea problem to date, Dan. Jason Moser, what are you looking at this week? Yeah, I'm excited to see Unity Software, ticker U, finally go public. They are now uh, trading on the public markets as of this week. And Unity Software operates a 3D development platform. Ultimately, they um, have software for creators. They create, run, monetize uh, interactive and real-time content, 2D, 3D uh, mobile phones, tablets, PCs, consoles, very uh, large presence in augmented reality, virtual reality devices, uh, reputation for a, a really strong presence in the gaming industry, but they have done a very good job of, of uh, stepping beyond just the gaming industry. So, whether it's healthcare or engineering, uh, aviation, anything, I mean, it, Unity is becoming a platform for creators everywhere, and we're seeing a lot of impressive numbers. Um, as of June of this year, uh, they had approximately one and a half million monthly active creators in uh, just about every country around the globe. And, and the applications developed were downloaded over 3 billion times per month in 2019 on over 1.5 billion unique devices. So, clearly a company with a very big reach and glad to see it uh, out there for investors now. Dan, question about Unity Software? Absolutely. Jason, the video game space is very crowded, very competitive, and also very expensive to produce. What makes Unity special? How does it stand out? Yeah, I, I think that really is in the in the immersive uh, content, right? The augmented and virtual reality uh, content that they're able to help produce, that, that really is seen as, as the next leap forward in gaming and in other uh, types of immersive experiences. What do you want to add to your watch list, Dan? I'm looking at Inspire. I mean, if yes, anything Dan. to cut down on snoring in the wild, man, I'm all for it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we're out of time. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you.